This is Fine Tuning, an examination of Mark Lewison's Tune In. An original series by Another Kind of Mind. I'm, I'm pretty average, actually. I mean, you know, it sounds a bit silly and people won't ever have it, but I, I promise, from inside this thing, it's well average. <laughs> well average? Okay, Paul. Mm-hmm. People won't have it, huh? Well, we're not having it either. <laughs> we understand what Paul means here, to a certain extent. He is a functioning professional. He loves and is close to his family. He appreciates the simple things in life. And he's not out making scenes in nightclubs, etc. But he's also the world's most successful songwriter who changed the face of pop culture in his youth and still sells out arenas and gets number ones. And he's been world famous for over 60 years. Which just might be a world record. He's multi-talented to a disturbing level. And some of his talents push the boundaries of what we know about human beings. He is like an Olympic athlete in terms of musical and creative talents. So he is also definitely not at all average. And he'd probably concede that his abilities and achievements aren't ordinary, but then turn around and insist that he as a human being is. And for the most part, Beatles fans and authors have accepted that as the truth. In his lyrics book, Paul expanded a bit on his concept of ordinary. He said, I'm actually quite a fan of ordinary. I hope in many ways it defines me. And so also many of the songs I've written. Don't get me wrong. I like extraordinary people and things. But if people can be great and ordinary at the same time, That, to me, is kind of special. So my Liverpool family, my parents, all the aunties and uncles, they were great and ordinary, and I think the fact that this combination can be easily dismissed makes it even more special. So you can choose to be highly sophisticated, but very uptight. Or you can be not so sophisticated, but at peace with yourself. I try and be a bit of a mixture, and I draw very strongly on that ordinariness. In this sense, that Paul is an extraordinary talent who admires values and immortalizes so-called ordinary people, perhaps he is an honorary ordinary person. (laughs) Ordinary by association, perhaps. 
Certainly he is a stubborn populist, an artist invested in the everyman. But that doesn't mean he is an everyman. Welcome to Unseen Paul, the 10th and penultimate episode of our fine-tuning series. Now, don't let that put you off if you haven't been following the series. This episode can stand completely on its own. We'll mention tune in here and there as a contrast to our points or to highlight the shortcomings of that book. But unless stated otherwise, all of the quotes and stories we will share in this episode were not in tune in. In episode four, Shells and Barriers, we said the Paul of Tune In isn't real, and so he isn't relatable. One thing we've heard over and over again in defense of Tune In's shallow portrait of Paul is that there simply isn't enough interesting or intimate information out there to create a compelling portrait of him. Our goal is to prove that is definitely not the case, and to reveal Paul McCartney as a fascinating, unusual, complex, vulnerable person and artist, eminently worthy of study and empathy. As ever, we are not saying TuneIn had to have included everything we're about to share. We're just saying there is plenty there. And TuneIn should have done better. Most of the quotes and stories we'll share here were available before 2013, when TuneIn was published. There are a few which were not, and we'll give you that heads up every time. We'll give you the year that all of these sources came from. But since our main purpose here is to elucidate Paul McCartney for our listeners to the best of our ability, rather than continue commenting on TuneIn specifically, we have included a few post-2013 tidbits as well that we feel are particularly interesting. We'll circle back to and expand on some of the things that we've brought up in previous episodes. We're going to be able to develop those a bit better. And we've made an effort to narrow our focus to attributes and observations that we feel are directly relevant to the Beatles. We think Paul's background experiences, artistry, and personality are relevant to the Beatles and deserve attention in a Beatles biography. As Daphne has said several times, we want this episode to be able to stand on its own, meaning if you have, for example, friends or colleagues who have not listened to fine-tuning, or who perhaps refuse to listen to fine-tuning, or who have not read TuneIn and aren't invested in that whole debate, that's absolutely fine. Our goal is that anyone who is interested in Paul McCartney will find a lot to like in Unseen Paul. We'll be focusing on three main areas. Paul's artistry, his upbringing, and his personality. The more we study him, the more Paul's extraordinary duality shines through. He's talked about it himself too many times to count. He craves approval, yet hates being told what to do. He's an adroit diplomat with persistent foot-in-mouth disease. 
He's confident, yet anxious, insecure, yet arrogant, graceful, yet awkward, emotional, yet repressed, a pragmatic dreamer, and a popular black sheep. He is an upbeat, eternal optimist who continually writes about lives of quiet desperation. So maybe this extraordinary man is, in a sense, ordinary. <laughs> half ordinary, half extraordinary. Is that a contradiction in terms? A paradox? An impossibility? Or is it exactly the sort of thing Paul McCartney loves to pull off? Welcome to my Mark Lewison is emphatically not the only writer to shortchange Paul or to present him as uncomplicated, uninteresting, like some sort of normie. And I've been thinking a lot about why Paul tends to get this treatment. It's been going on for a long time, and there are probably a lot of reasons behind it. It's definitely a complex issue. What I'd like to talk about right now is a possible connection to the way Paul is seen, or not seen, as a writer. In our episode, Creative Whirlwind, we discussed TuneIn's utter disinterest in the lyrics of Paul McCartney's first song, Suicide. Even though Suicide is obviously a very unusual song for a 14-year-old to write, and it shows several of McCartney's lifelong motifs. So from the very beginning, Paul was interested in creating a character, specifically in telling the story of a downtrodden woman, and he paired an upbeat melody with dark subject matter. As you may remember, while TuneIn was complimentary of Suicide's melody, the only thing it tells us about the lyrics is that they aren't good. Now, Paul himself is harsh in his own self-assessment, of those lyrics. But the point isn't whether or not the lyrics needed work. Suicide's lyrics are important because they tell us something important about Paul McCartney and his artistic development. But instead of exploring that, TuneIn made a point of telling us there's nothing to see here. Which, again, is not unique, but it is a problem. This attitude preemptively curtails analysis of and critical thinking about Paul himself. Yeah, it's a mental shortcut. Yeah, exactly. Because if we assume he won't be saying anything important or revealing anything about himself, because we already know that's not what Paul McCartney does, then that becomes the foregone conclusion and otherwise intelligent people seem to just kind of switch part of their brain off. And so then when Paul writes a lyric whose meaning is not immediately obvious, it gets immediately dismissed as meaningless. And then that snowballs and becomes a trope and eats the cat that kills the rat, <laughs> which, which all impoverishes not just our view of Paul as a writer, but our view of him as a person. Because if Paul McCartney is an artist, 
who spent most of his time writing very pretty but conceptually meaningless songs, then it makes sense to have that attitude, that who cares how he came to be the person that he is kind of attitude. If his contribution to art is a knack for churning out ear candy, which is impossible to quantify and very difficult even to write about, then what is there to write about him? Well, what does it matter who he is? Or how and why he got to be that way? It's irrelevant. Well, we reject that premise, and we resent its presence in Tunin. If there is one thing I personally would like to communicate as a Beatles podcaster, it is this. If you go into Paul's lyrics with an open mind, if you try to earnestly engage with him as a writer, if you meet him halfway, there is so much there to discover and to enjoy. So much color, so much feeling and wit, so much meaningful commentary, meaningful questions, and meaningful self-expression. Paul is an artist who frequently employs imagery, metaphor, story, a naive narrator voice, and stark contrasts between style and subject. These are all beautiful, sophisticated, and time-honored artistic devices. Also, he doesn't always take that step back to tell you explicitly what he's telling you implicitly. Sometimes he does give you a meta line like, all the lonely people, where do they all belong? But sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes he just gives you the image. I never give you my pillow. I only send you my invitation. That is not a flaw. That is poetry. Sure, sometimes Paul is just throwing word noodles at the wall to see what sticks. Because that's a fun thing to do. But that doesn't mean that's all he does. Yes, Paul is often indirect rather than explicitly autobiographical. And yes, that makes more work for the audience. But that is exactly why it's so important to examine him thoroughly so that we can get clues as to what he is expressing and why it might be hard for him to express it. Please, with respect and love, please, don't be lazy in your analysis and then accuse Paul of being lazy in his writing. Most of us have trouble talking about certain topics, and there are usually reasons for that. The topics a person can't talk about tells you something about them. Now, I understand that TuneIn is not literary analysis, it's a biography, but the way we think of John and Paul as artists, as writers, influences how we treat them as biographical subjects. And a biography that treats an artist as unworthy of examination prepares the reader to likewise look upon his work as equally unworthy. A Beatles biography that doesn't bother to look past Paul McCartney's surfaces just isn't trying hard enough. Well, thank you, Daphne. <laughs> <laughs> what I'd like to talk about today is... Paul as a nonconformist, 
and what an important element that was in the Beatles. Absolutely. Versatility and diversity is kind of kind of the sine qua non of the Beatles. Tragically, though, Paul's quirkiness is not celebrated or even treated as positive in TuneIn, which again is not a feature unique to that particular book. However, I'd argue that Paul's quirkiness is a large part of the Beatles' wide and long-standing appeal. Paul's non-conformity to those expectations of coolness, such as his defiant willfulness to shamelessly like what he likes, his interest in people from all walks of life, people who are not cool in any way, Paul's interest in those people, their stories, their experiences, finding them all interesting, mm -hmm. that's not the makings of a cool rock star. Those are the makings of a great artist. Mm -hmm. A poet. But are they the makings of a rock star? No. <laughs> no. Stuart Sutcliffe may have been spinning yarn when he said everyone hated Paul in Hamburg. But he was right about one thing. Within the Beatles, as well as the world of rock and roll at large, Paul is a black sheep. Here's a great statement from Iris Caldwell, who dated Paul in the early 60s. As a reminder, she's Rory Storm's sister. She said, Paul in particular never felt that if he liked something that he should pretend he didn't. He wouldn't say he liked something if he didn't or put some sort of music down just because it wasn't what was supposed to be in at the time. He wouldn't run with the crowd. If he liked a record or a group you weren't supposed to like, he'd say so. That speaks to a lot of strength of character for a 20-year-old. Indeed. And uh, he was this way his entire life. Mm -hmm. He was this way when he met John Lennon. He was this way throughout his career. He is that person today. Yep. He gets hit for it all the time still. Mm -hmm. And he's never changed. <laughs> no. And during the Beatles' career, he obviously kept writing traditionally structured mega hits, but he also got more and more experimental and more and more weird because he likes <laughs> that too. He likes everything. And he can envision how to mix disparate styles and mm -hmm. invent new styles. He's yeah. not constricted by musical boundaries. This quality is so important to him and to the Beatles. And I think it's underplayed and undervalued in the Beatles story. So many old school Beatles pundits are either willfully ignorant or maybe just clueless as to the importance of Paul's nonconformity. I also think a lot of authors miss how incredibly rare that quality is in adolescence. Yeah. That's what's so mind-blowing about it. And that's what's so sexy. And I mean sexy from an artistic standpoint. <laughs> like, like, so attractive. That's such an attractive quality in an artist. Yep. So... To spell this out, once and for all, Paul did not just apply gloss to John's feral genius. He brought his own values, his own vision, his formidable energy, 
his passion for his art, and his lifelong dedication and love to the Beatles. His kindness and patience, his passion for learning, his love of teaching, his compulsion to create and experiment. All of these make him a fascinating, alluring figure, and all of these are important to the Beatles. TuneIn documents the beginning of the Beatles before most of their best-known compositions were written and recorded. So let's start with something seemingly simple, the early Beatles repertoire. I definitely believe Paul loves rock and roll. It was a big part of his youth that inspired and excited him, but I consider him a lover of music rather than a rock lover specifically. Studying the Beatles means analyzing a body of work that has survived trend after trend after trend, decade after decade after decade. So if you're going to do that and you're going to put the Beatles in any sort of wider context, you need to demonstrate a genuine respect for all the music of the Western world in the past two centuries, let's say. And the important thing is, one of the Beatles in particular has love for all kinds of music. That should be celebrated. The melding of genres and broadening of the Beatles' appeal, diversifying their audience, is largely thanks to Paul McCartney. And it can very easily be traced back to the things we already mentioned, the love of classical literature, a respect for the variety of human diversity, of children and elders, what can be learned from prior generations, from musical tradition, whether that was the dance hall of his working class roots, his father's influence, or classical music that he discovered through George Martin or through school, as well as, of course, later on, when we get to that in the future, an interest in electronic music, avant-garde, things of that nature. Which is one reason why it's so crucial to thoroughly and respectfully explore Paul's artistic development as a child, teenager, and young man. And of course, Paul is not the only Beatle with any interest outside rock or contemporary pop. George Harrison famously introduced the sitar to Western 60s popular music but paul's influence is most deeply imbued in the variety and versatility of the beatles catalog he brought standards show tunes lounge and dance hall foreign language numbers into their act more or less from the beginning and then succeeded at utilizing and subverting these styles within his own songwriting TuneIn gives us several accounts of various songs that Paul would perform with the Beatles that were outside of their staple repertoire of the Everly Brothers, Chuck Berry, Larry Williams. Yeah, Buddy Holly, Carl Perkins, all those names we know and love. Over and over again, TuneIn describes John mocking Paul, or taking the mickey if you want to make it cute, for some of his musical choices. Specifically, Somewhere Over the Rainbow, Till There Was You, 
a taste of honey, and besame mucho. We've compiled those examples on our website if you want to read the full quotes and some analysis. But suffice to say, TuneIn reports these incidents with an actually approving tone while calling John Paul's hero yet again and framing John as the one who recognizes there was scope for all kinds of music in this group to please all kinds of audiences. He also writes that John was mocking his friend and partner because he knew the Beatles must have a solid front line and that they'd break through by being different. So, yet again, John is given the credit for allowing Paul to make his own original choices, even though John is simultaneously mocking Paul on stage for doing so, and TuneIn ascribes noble motives to John's behavior. By contrast, unfortunately, TuneIn frames Paul the one actually making those choices and sticking to them in the face of mockery, not as an overwhelming positive, but as something that makes Paul uncool. Which, again, is certainly not a unique attitude amongst Beatles authors, but to me, completely misses the point. Of course, it's fine for everyone to have their own personal taste. And if original recipe rock and roll is your personal favorite, well, congrats. It was also John Lennon's favorite. Mm -hmm. That's valid. Of course. But to confidently and blithely assume that your favorites are objectively superior... And to write that into a Beatles biography, that speaks to some kind of unexamined entitlement, which is inappropriate in a Beatles biography, which should represent the viewpoint of all the Beatles. Also, John Lennon is many wonderful and beautiful things. We can all agree. Yes. However, <laughs> if John is the superhero protagonist, no one can take their eyes off of, as TuneIn tells us. And if John is the Beatle that all the other Beatles have their best relationship with, yeah, which TuneIn also tells us, then he is not also the quirky outsider who has to tolerate being mocked, who constantly gets called soft and lets it roll off his back and says, fuck it, I like what I like. That's Paul. You cannot actively make the case that Paul goes against the grain, that he doesn't succumb to peer pressure, that he follows his own path, and then deny him that designation. The black sheep is the nonconformist of the group. And that yes. person is and always has been Paul. To me, that is the biggest thing that authors like Lewison, who don't get Paul's appeal, just do not understand. That aspect of Paul is appealing to people who are drawn to him. Some see those qualities and view them as not cool and therefore not something they want to be associated with. 
other people don't have that reaction because it takes all types, doesn't it? It sure does. Okay. Those qualities, being quirky, being legitimately odd rather than performatively odd, <laughs> sincerely liking quaint or niche things regardless of their popularity, not bowing to peer pressure and being seemingly impervious to bullying even from your best friends that may make a young man unpopular with his clique sometimes and not everyone in the audience gravitates towards that character it's fine to prefer the cool guy that everyone is in love with if that's who you like or aspire to be or whatever mm -hmm. But there are so many other types of people in this world. <laughs> Please, I need you to understand that. Yes. Many other types of people like Paul. Yes. And not in spite of his supposedly uncool moments, but because of them. Mm -hmm. Because they see the value in softness, in quirkiness. You know what I love, Phoebe? I love that soft has become a positive word now. Yeah, well, at least for some. Yeah, the up-and-comers. <laughs> the cliche that Paul always cared so much about what other random people thought, and John never cared because John was always boldly, authentically himself at all times. That is such a shallow, simplistic take. Yes, at times, Paul could be self-conscious. And sometimes John could be bravely authentic. Of course. But when it comes to the music, Paul is an awesome, balls-out king for adopting the attitude. Oh, okay, you're going to call me a because I'm singing this soft-ass song? You're going to pick on me because I have shapely eyebrows or, you know, because I don't like slam my beer down on the bar when I finish it or whatever it is you want me to do that would prove mm -hmm. to you that I'm sufficiently masculine. Okay, well, that's your problem. Out in the West Texas town of El Paso, I fell in love with a Mexican girl. So let's discuss Paul as an observer of human nature and a creator of characters. His creative method as a writer is obviously vital to his songwriting and to the Beatles. His interest in characters and kind of world building also speak to his detail-orientedness and his fascination with imagery. It's often a vehicle for certain feelings, which for a variety of reasons, may be uncomfortable or unappealing for him to express autobiographically. And beyond that, it speaks to his voyeuristic fascination with other people, his love of storytelling, and his poetic way with the written word. This enthusiasm started for Paul very young, which we know from Dusty Durbin, Paul's English master at the Liverpool Institute. As a reminder, there is no suggestion in TuneIn that Durbin took any special notice of Paul or ever even spoke about him. But fortunately, in his Paul bio, Salowich wrote, Durbin remembers that after a lesson, 
Paul wouldn't just pick up his books and walk out, but would linger, discussing theories and possibilities about the plots and characters in their texts. Dermot is quoted as saying, Paul wasn't a background, but a foreground person. There are obviously many character songs in Paul's canon. Since we're limiting our scope to the early days, we're not going to go into those later songs here. But we did want to remind listeners of some of the things that we've mentioned before. For instance, the characters that Paul recalled on the bus in many years from now. There was the gentleman who was rattling off names of comics and laughing to himself and who got the entire bus laughing by the time he got off at his stop. And there was the man who was talking to an invisible parrot on his arm. As you do. As, as one does. Paul spoke of those characters in many years from now. For more on that and on Dusty Durbin, check out our episode, Creative Whirlwind. In 2007, Paul was interviewed by Record Collector Magazine, and he recalled with great clarity and detail a woman that he visited in his youth. They were talking about Eleanor Rigby, and Paul explained that, yes, of course, Eleanor Rigby is a character that he created, but there was some basis in real people that he knew as a child. And he said, in actual fact, there were a few of those sort of old ladies that were in my life, pensioners who lived on an estate around where I lived. And in fact, there was an old lady there. I used to go and get her shopping for her. It was just something I enjoyed doing. I'd just drop in and say, do you need anything? The great thing about it was that I learned about her life instead of just all my mates at school. So it broadened my outlook on life. I remember this particular lady when I was living in Forthland Road in Allerton. I would go to the shops and drop <laughs> off at hers, and she had a little crystal radio crackling, which is something from the old wartime days. People used to make their own radios. I used to marvel at how they could make a radio, which a lot of people had done. I thought, I must try and learn how to do that one of these days. What a cool thing to do. Yeah, so what do you think about that? Well, A, you know, to, to mention, tune in for a moment. Perhaps this story will surface in once tune in gets to the song Eleanor Rigby, and then readers can belatedly learn that mm. Paul McCartney was a very interesting child who would do things of his own accord, like visit and talk to old ladies and bring them their groceries. I, I feel like this just tells us so much about him. Mm -hmm. I think my favorite thing about this story is that he is, and we have many, many, many support points, so it's not just this story that I'm basing it on, but he is genuinely interested in people that are very, very different from himself. Yeah. And not in a way of like, I'm going to virtue signal. No, he just thinks it's neat. It broadened my outlook on life. Like, what a quality child. Mm -hmm. Not from a moral standpoint, but just as a just as an interesting person and an artist. Yes. It boggles my mind that anyone would squander an opportunity like that to give us insight on this person. What a wasted opportunity. It's not rebelliousness. He's not doing it to be different. 
Well, he sees no reason why he shouldn't do something he likes. And he's not embarrassed by old yes. women. Yeah, I th and I think I think women are probably just way more sensitive to how unusual a trait that is. You know what? That's probably a good point. Maybe it just doesn't ping for male authors the way that it does for literally every woman I've ever talked to about this. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. Oh, no, he really, he really, really thinks of them as human beings. Oh, wow. With intrinsic value and can find something to admire about them. I think he's also sort of, he is expressing an appreciation for the unexpected. We could actually learn a lot from old ladies. Now, if we were to give Paul a bit of criticism... I'd say his track record on treating women as equals within his own peer group is not quite so good. No. Or at least not the women he sees as sexually available. I think the standard would be like, okay, well, once a woman is no longer of sexual value, mm -hmm. she's trash, which is sort of a, you know, the more traditional point yeah. of view, right? Whereas maybe for Paul, it's like, well, I'm not sexually interested in her, so... Now I can sit down and listen. What do you, what, you know, it's like that, that distraction is gone, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Now I can engage with her as a human being. He likes when people defy expectations. He likes that. He likes the idea of hidden, of hidden lives. He loves that idea. Yeah, he sure does. It's one of his favorite things. Secret ambitions you know missed opportunities like mm -hmm. what like yeah other directions that your life might have gone in women and men too but especially mm -hmm. in women yeah i like that even when he's writing a story of sort of a life of quiet desperation obviously there's sympathy and empathy for the person but there's also he looks for sort of the the nobility there All right, so let's talk about Paul's brain. Tudin does call Paul smart and bright several times. So the book definitely recognizes that Paul is intelligent. However, we'd like to talk about the numerous observations of people around Paul and the early Beatles regarding Paul's striking intelligence. A surprising number of people comment on this, actually. And I say surprising because high intelligence is not really part of Paul's mainstream image. Which is definitely not to say that he's considered stupid or anything. Smart just isn't normally part of the lead description. Then this isn't my observation, either. This is me reacting to the observation of others. So we just want to share some of those because it seems to reveal a side of Paul that the mainstream public doesn't really see that much. And we're not going to spend a ton of time analyzing these because, again, TuneIn acknowledges Paul is very smart. But these quotes do speak to my earlier point about Paul as a writer. Presumably, part of why people are sleeping on him as a lyricist is because of an assumption that he isn't smart enough. 
<laughs> in the traditional academic sense, I guess, to compose sophisticated lyrics. So I do find the following quotes interesting. Okay, so first we'll read some quotes from Paul's teachers. Muriel Ward, Paul's headmistress at Joseph Williams, commented that he was obviously 11 plus material and said he would always make people laugh and she called him very vivacious. Arthur Evans, Paul's German master from the Liverpool Institute, said that Paul was eminently likable, charming, pleasant, always armed with very ready quips, but not impertinent. Good ability, though I wouldn't say he always put it to the best use, though I suppose that depends on whether you regard academic attainment as important. He did more than enough to get by. I don't think he ever really exerted himself, but I didn't think he needed to. He was very able. Yet if he had pushed himself, he could have done very well indeed academically. Okay, so he didn't exert himself. But he still passed five O levels and an A level. Here's another observation from Jack Sweeney. He was Paul's modern languages teacher at the Institute. He said, I bumped into him in the city center when the Beatles were enjoying their first success. And I said, what's all this about this sudden fame? And he laughed and replied, it's a giggle, isn't it? An absolute giggle. He was laughing at his own success. And I think this is something that comes from his sheer intelligence. For he was very, very bright. Irony is an elusive gift and quite rare, particularly when it is so self-deprecating. So that's the second teacher who remarked on Paul's abilities and sheer intelligence being very, very bright. Now, all that said, for whatever it's worth, Dusty Durbin did not think that Paul was Oxford or Cambridge material. Um, he is quoted in Salowich's book as saying, There were people far more intellectually clever than Paul, and I don't think that even if he had pushed himself, he would have made it to Oxford or Cambridge. I think teachers' training college was the rank order, but he wouldn't have just gone out and been a clerk. To my knowledge, none of his teachers said he was Oxbridge material. So right. we're not trying to overstate his intellectual prowess. We're just right, or, or academic discipline. Well, that too. Yeah. We're just compiling the various perspectives mm -hmm. to get a better overall view. Here's another observation from Jack Sweeney. He said, Paul would have been a very imaginative school teacher because he was a born communicator. There was about him this intellectual curiosity. In fact, a curiosity about all things. <laughs> yes. That speaks not just to his brains, but to his character, I think. Or at least to his beautiful mind. <laughs> yeah, he is, yeah, he's hungry. Intellectually hungry. And again, he's willing and eager to acquire knowledge from all sources, from all different kinds of people. We also have some reflections from a few of Paul's classmates. Pete Sissons says, Paul stood out as a bright lad, but a cheeky lad. It was much more than just the proverbial Liverpudlian wit, though. And then Pete references George Harrison, two years behind them in the lower classes. And he adds, but intellectually, 
Paul was in a completely different world. I've never talked to him about it, but I wouldn't mind betting he might be a little tinged with regret that he missed going on to further education because he was a phenomenally bright lad and still is just so alert and sharp. And in 2009, Paul did an interview with Jonathan Power, another Institute uh, schoolmate. And Power said, We were in a very academic school, and we were in the fast stream up to O-levels. Four years, not five like everybody else. We were being pressured to look at university. When did you decide to break with that? And then Paul tells the story about not... Uh, knowing how or not knowing when he was supposed to apply to university um, and he thinks that that was you know fate stepping in so power actually presses him on this a bit which is good i'm glad yeah uh, he he responds but the teachers told us all how to do it and paul responds yes but mccartney you never listen it was always in my end of turn report if only he would pay more attention he would do well Power continues to press him. He says, come on, you weren't that stupid. You were one of the brightest boys in our class. Let's take it out of the school system into like the social sphere of the Beatles. Okay. Okay. Here are two from Salwich. We quoted the photographer Les Chadwick in our episode Spanner in the Works. You may recall that Mr. Chadwick commented, Paul was a bright lad, in his own way, the brightest of the lot. Iris Caldwell, Paul's one-time girlfriend, said, Paul was the whole driving force in the group. He was the clever one. That's from the early days as well. And an early interviewer in 1964 identified Paul as the most intelligent also. She said specifically that he was known that way to yeah. fans. And then Paul so sort of demurely said, oh... Am I? Uh, uh, no. Why is it, Paul, that you're always described as the most intelligent one of the Beatles? Are you? Uh, no, I'm not. No, no. Well, John's written a book, you know, so he must be more intelligent than me. Thanks. You've got to be intelligent to write books. And so Paul himself certainly plays into the characterization of John as the smart one and has continued to do so. In the 1984 Playboy interview, Paul said... John was the quickest wit and the smartest. And we're not trying to compare the two. We're not interested in doing that. We just think these observations from others are interesting and worth exploring. One thing that is a huge contributing factor to Paul's intelligence is his memory. Barry Miles would observe, anything musical that Paul learns goes immediately into his head and is liable to resurface years later when, for whatever reasons, he knows that he needs it. Mm -hmm. And that most likely plays into Mike's comment that Paul was a natural exam taker. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He's well adapted to academics and, and test taking because it's probably not such a challenge for him to remember a lot of stuff because he has a big hard drive. Right. Jim has commented on Paul's memory also. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so has George Martin, Jeff Emmerich, and Peter Asher. Uh, they've all commented on Paul's impressive, retentive memory. I just think we should talk about it a little bit more and maybe consider it a little bit more when mm -hmm. we're trying to understand Paul and the Beatles. Because 
Well, for a few reasons. I think it goes to his overall psychological profile mm-hmm. in that he absorbs a great deal of information and contains a lot of information. So that means, I think, what he's thinking about things, he flips through a lot of different a lot of different scenarios. So if you're a person yes. like that and then you also have anxiety. <laughs> yeah. Or you can, you know, look at a single scenario from multiple angles. Mm-hmm. That can be overwhelming and can lead to like sort of freezing, freezing up. And I think that could, that's expressed in a couple of different ways, probably with him. Mm-hmm. One is not being able to articulate the thoughts in his head. For sure. I think his brain just works a little bit different mm-hmm. than maybe most people. There was a boy, a very strange enchanted boy. They say he wandered very far, very far over land and sea. One of Paul's most consistent and profound themes as a writer, artist, and person is his lifelong love of nature. Nature was his escape. As a child, nature inspired him as an artist. It soothed him during the Beatles' breakup. And for the rest of his adult life, environmentalism and compassion for animals became his social cause of choice. There is no justification for this topic being ignored by TuneIn. But wait, I can hear some listeners thinking. That would be applying hindsight. Well, for one thing, Lewison uses hindsight throughout TuneIn. He has to. Virtually all of the Beatles' thoughts, feelings, recollections were given in hindsight. Certainly about their childhoods, because they did not have journalists following them around as children. Secondly, it's perfectly appropriate and necessary to use some hindsight in order to choose which aspects of a person's early life to focus on. For example, George's childhood thoughts on religion are given a full page in TuneIn. That's not because George was a devout Catholic as a child, that's because religion became so important to George later in his life. So it makes sense to give his earliest thoughts on it respect and space in his biography. That is Biography 101. Paul's love of nature deserves the same. And there are plenty of quotes to choose from. Here are a few. From many years from now. For Paul and Michael, the best thing about living in Speak was the countryside. In a couple of minutes, they could be in Dungeon Lane, which led through the fields to the banks of the Mersey. Paul would often cycle the two and a half miles along the shoreline to the lighthouse at Hale Head, where the river makes a 90-degree turn, giving a panoramic view across the mud and navigation channels to the industrial complex of Runcorn on the far side. The little village of Hale was less than two miles away. It was a favorite destination for a family walk 
On the way back, Paul's parents and the two boys would stop at a tea shop called the Elizabethan Cottage for a pot of tea, Hovis toast, and homemade jam. It was a pleasant, genteel interlude, a touch of quality before they walked back to their very different life among the new gray houses and hard concrete roads of the housing estate. Paul said, This is where my love of the country came from. I was always able to take my bike, and in five minutes I'd be in quite deep countryside. I remember the damn woods, which had millions of rhododendron bushes. We used to have dens in the middle of them, because they get quite bare in the middle, so you could squeeze in. I've never seen that many rhododendrons since. From Tony Bramwell's book, Magical Mystery Tour, My Life with the Beatles, Tony writes, Paul came from a large, close-knit family with lots of relatives, music, and spirit. But his mother's death left a huge gap. I miss her. The house feels empty, Paul said. He didn't say much more than that. But at times, he looked lost and quite vulnerable. It was round about then that you would often see him bicycling off to the woods and fields or along the shore to watch birds for hours on his own. So we have young Paul bird watching and hiding in rhododendrons. <laughs> yes, making a nest for himself. There's just, there's so much you can do with that as a writer. I don't understand. Well, it also is very evocative. I mean, yes, birds are escape, freedom, exhilaration. They're not a typical preoccupation with young boys. Well, that's, that's true too. Or young girls, for that matter. It's just it's kind of no, an old another... man activity. <laughs> yeah, this is another quirky aspect of Paul. How patient and still do you have to be to birdwatch? Well. I mean, th there is a reason old people love birdwatching. That's true. Seriously. <laughs> yeah, it's a very sedentary hobby. Well, and it's very meditative. Yes. So we will refer once again to Mike's 1965 essay, Portrait of Paul. Mike wrote, The other thing, besides art, that interested Paul was nature study. Here again, it was a question of having his interest aroused at school. There was a school rabbit, and it was one of the jobs of the nature class to march across the countryside to a farm a few miles away to get straw for this rabbit. During these tramps, Paul would poke into streams and ponds and study water rats, moles, field mice, fish, all sorts of things. Uh, then Mike tells a terrible story about them getting pet, pet rabbits from Jim, who had babies, and then they killed other babies, which made <laughs> Mike and Paul weep. It's one of those Aww. classic heartbreaking childhood stories. Uh, and then he goes on. Paul then got a bug about tadpoles. Is it possible to make a pond, Dad? He asked one day. What for, son? asked Dad. To raise tadpoles, replied Paul. Dad was always very good at trying to supply anything we wanted, particularly if he thought it would be of an informative or educative nature. A few days later, he dug a big hole in the back garden and sank a beer barrel in the space. Then he left us to fill it with water. Paul got a lot of frog spawn from somewhere, and dumped it and dumped all this into the barrel. For weeks, he lived for nothing else but that spawn. 
the moment he came home from school, he'd be out into the garden, stuffing his face down into that spawn to see how it was getting on. They're getting tails, he'd yell at me, and then I'd go and look at the messy stuff. I couldn't understand what was exciting him. Look, there's one with a body, he'd point. All I could see was some stuff that looked a, that looked like a whole lot of dirty marmalade. Gross. I know. <laughs> then one day he ran into the house yelling blue murder. They're getting away, he was shouting. They're running off into the fields. Mom and I ran out and there was a horde of frogs jumping and leaping about all oh. over the place. We managed to grab one or two and hold on to them for a moment or so. But the minute we set them down again, off they went into the bushes oh. and hedges. In a very short time, Paul's pond was completely empty. You should have seen his face. It would have made you laugh and cry at the same time. He had never counted on his spawn turning into real live frogs. Neither had the frogs. Oh. <laughs> so cute. Oh, little baby Paul's an empty nester. I know. Oh. His babies all ran away. So what do you take away from that story? Well, aside from the obvious that Paul loves nature and animals that he is nurturing yeah and this wasn't a phenomenon that occurred once he became a father right it's always been part of his personality in fact in 1985 when asked how he envisioned his future as a child he said the only thing i remember about thinking what i'd be when i grew up was when I was about five, I remember thinking, I wonder if I'll ever be a father. That was the only thing I wondered if I'd be. Because it was so magical at five. How am I ever going to turn into the father of someone? Was the only thing I ever wondered. Well, that's very unusual. I think so, yeah. He also talked about that in one of the Terry Wogan interviews. It's from the 80s, and he says, I remember thinking, I might well be a dad one day. I'm a fella. There's every chance. Oh. <laughs> that's a, I still think that that's unusual. It, that's not a normal, like... Five-year-old thought? Yeah. It's not. Most kids will say, like, fireman or policeman. Sure, sure. Doctor. Um, yeah or even when i grow up i'm gonna marry mommy you know something like that <laughs> yeah and some little girls will say i want to be a mommy that's true because they're mm -hmm. you know that's a vocation for them at least especially uh -huh. back in that time mm -hmm. exactly. it was most likely what they were going to grow up to be honestly well, yeah. and they were be being given dolls and yeah yes but like father is not even like that wasn't even an option for a little boy as you know what i mean like mm -hmm. So it's just a weird thing. I don't mean weird, but it's it's just an unusual thing to, to include that as like part of his identity or like his vocation. Mm -hmm. Someone in my family has taught preschool for 40 years, specifically four and five-year-old children. I asked her, I was like, is this something you've ever heard a boy in your class say? when they talk about what they want to be when they grow up and she said no no never the boys will play in the housekeeping you know they'll put the baby in the shopping cart or in the crib or whatever sure sure yeah 
but not I want to be a dad when I grow up. Mm-hmm. And isn't that magical? And isn't that magical? Like, I don't even know what the takeaway is. I just think it's... I was about it, to say, yeah, I'm not <laughs> entirely sure what he's commenting on. And I don't even know what conclusion I'm drawing from it, except that it's just an outside-the-box kind of way to think. Mm-hmm. It is just so disheartening that there's none of this characterization in Tune In. I know. This lovely, interesting, weird little person just doesn't <laughs> exist in Lewison's book. The ink is black, the page is white. Together we learn to read and write, to read and write. And now a child can understand this is the law of all the land, all the land. I think that there were a lot of really great things about Paul's childhood that John didn't have. Yeah, I agree with that. But in terms of also traumatic things happening, he just doesn't deal with them. Or doesn't want to talk about them, or has blocked them out. <laughs> Possibly with the help of substances. Yeah. Um, well, and I can also see him kind of boiling it all down to one thing, like I was taught how to love my children. John didn't get to bounce babies on his knees. And that's the worst <laughs> thing I can think of would be, you know, to not be able to have the relationship I want with my kids. That would be the worst thing mm. ever. So therefore, John's childhood was the worst thing ever. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. And no matter how much Paul was hit in his house, he was also loved. Yep, exactly. And he certainly got attention. His dad was a very devoted father who cared about his kids. Which is crucial. Yeah, and in some ways is more important than, you know, getting everything right and being perfect all the time. Right. How much Jim got right, how much he got wrong. No matter what, I don't think Paul ever felt unwanted. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, which is super, super important, especially in those really young, tender, formative years. Yeah. I just, I would like us all to get to a point where we can accept that. But then we can also accept that it wasn't perfect. And like the ways in which it wasn't perfect actually do have repercussions. Yes. The McCartney home life becomes more complex the the further we dig into it. And Jim becomes a more complex character as well. He is almost exclusively painted as a very two-dimensional character, morally upright old-fashioned but kind yes exactly yeah but but always i think the objective or at least the takeaway is that he's providing the moral foundation and the role modeling for paul that would render inexcusable any moral shortcomings on paul's part right because paul had every advantage And as we discussed thoroughly in episode four, Shells and Barriers, Paul does play into that himself. Mm -hmm. But I feel like the more that we dig in, the more we find that Jim was a bit more complicated Mm -hmm. and that the family life was a bit more complicated. And that even Mary is more complicated. Jim's strictness is portrayed as having no downside, really. Right. 
Yeah, but I think sometimes he went over the top. In Craig Brown's book, One, Two, Three, Four, he quotes the uh, caretaker slash docent of 24th and Road. After Paul's mum died, his father would insist that the two boys were home in time for dinner. If not, they were locked out. When this inevitably happened, Paul and Mike would run round the back of the house, climb up the drain pipe, and through the bathroom window, which, <laughs> which they always left on the latch for such an eventuality. And as a support point, we do have photographs of Paul demonstrating <laughs> mm-hmm. climbing up the drain pipe of 24th Lynn Road. So that drain pipe was not just to sneak John into his room or to sneak girls <laughs> into his room. <laughs> right. No, it was to get back in his own home. Yeah. So that, you know, be home in time for dinner or I'll lock you out of the house. That's pretty strict. Yeah, that's pretty that's pretty wild. And it's not, you know, by it's not by midnight either. It's by dinner. Yeah. It's not as if J- Jim is going to bed and he's like, if you're not home by the time I go to bed, I'm locking the door. Well, it must not just have been locking the door, though. I mean, pr- I presume they have keys to their own home, so it would have been like a deadbolt or something. Well, that's what I was going to ask. Are, can you not copy a key in 1960? Like, do they? Well, they must have keys because they talked about walking home from school and the house was empty when they got home. Yeah, that's true. They used to go home in the middle of the day. Yeah. So you presumably Paul would have a key. It's interesting. But in any case, it's pretty strict. It is. Yeah. Possibly even controlling. Tunin does report John's quote where... John seems to be suggesting Jim was unusually controlling about Paul's clothes and haircuts, etc. He said, Jim treated Paul like a child all the time, cut his hair, and telling him what to wear at 17, 18. Tunin fails to mention that Jim was also still hitting Paul at 17, as we discussed in Shells and Barriers. Uh, But to just stick to the haircuts and trousers for a second... There's definitely a sliding scale of normal when it comes to parents' involvement and investment in their kids' appearance. John is rebellious, you know, so maybe he's overstating. Or maybe Jim went overboard with this, even for the times. Also not in TuneIn is this quote from Mike about clothes and haircuts from Portrait of Paul. Whatever his attitude toward officialdom and authority in general, Paul always obeyed Dad's orders. Mm. Mike said to Beatles Book Monthly magazine in 1992, We, meaning the family, were dead straight until our mum died, and then we went totally to pieces. Mum was a very heavy influence on our lives, and she was very much one for keeping up a respectable front for the neighbors. If she had lived, there would have been a hell of a lot of pressure at home for Paul and me to have respectable jobs, to go into the professions, to become lawyers or Dr. McCartney, something like that. Dad, meanwhile, was a secret raver. Mm. Jim McCartney's secret raver. That's interesting. So Jim is a secret rebel, a secret weirdo. Yeah, well, it seems like Jim is both the fun parent and the disciplinarian. Yep. Let's talk a little bit more about that quote from Mike. 
Mum was a very heavy influence on our lives, and she was very much one for keeping up a respectable front for the neighbors. If she had lived, there would have been a hell of a lot of pressure at home for Paul and me to have respectable jobs. Mike also said in Thank You Very Much, Mum was the affection giver. Not over-demonstrative, though, as she'd had little love given to her as a child. Hmm. I know. She had a hard life. She had a very hard childhood. Yeah. yeah. So Mike is saying Mary was considerably more affectionate than Jim, but still was not overly affectionate. And the McCartney's neighbor, Tom Gall, said, Quite frankly, if Paul's mother had been alive, there would have been no Beatles, as far as Paul was concerned. She'd never have stood for that row. The lady was a real stickler, very much a very much a you-do-as-I-say kind of person. She was the dominant factor next door. There was no nonsense with Mrs. McCartney. She'd never have allowed it, all that argy-bargy. Jim offered to buy her a washing machine once, but she wouldn't have one because she thought it was somehow immoral. So you can imagine what she'd have thought of that row. She was a do-as-I-say kind of person. The dominant factor next door. There was no nonsense with Mrs. McCarty. Mm -hmm. Okay. I can't figure out if that means she's pious or is she just has a firm hand? I think both. Seems to me. The washing machine one, like that's, I don't even know. That's next level. Then there's her cleanliness and hygiene thing, which is a whole thing. Uh, we don't really have time to get into that. To me, Paul definitely seems to have some hygiene stuff going on. <laughs> At least as a young man. Yeah, and he always says, because my mom was a nurse, which mm -hmm. I there's definitely something to that. Of course. You know, soap literally did save lives. Yeah, but suffice to say, Mary had some issues. As we all do. As we all do, and of course she loved her kids. But in my opinion, it seems that her high standards and expectations might have been a stressor for Paul and contributed to his infamous people-pleasing tendencies. Mm -hmm. Everything we know about Mary suggests she was also incredibly stoic, like oh, yeah. outrageously stoic. <laughs> yes. And that may have been the best way she knew how to show her love by being a hardworking and self-sacrificing provider with high expectations. Yeah. So we're not criticizing her for this. We're no. just asking for people to consider the effect this would have on her sons, especially her eldest son. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's a uh, physical affection. What about verbal affection? Well, Angie McCartney, Jim's second wife was interviewed by Jeffrey Giuliano, and there are clips of the interview, sound clips. She spoke very clearly about Jim's inability to say, I love you. And she said, I'd sometimes say, do you love me? And he'd say, well, you know I do. Just tell me, just say it. No, I don't do that. I don't need to. You know. And evidently, Mary was very unable to show her emotions during his married life with Mary, and it seems that the very day that she died, when he kissed her on the cheek, she looked at him and said, I love you. 
the one and only time. Jim said that was the only time she ever said it, and he said, and I never said it to her. Okay. Okay. Well, that explains Paul's issue with saying I love you. Yeah. One of my big takeaways from that is that, I mean, obviously there's a direct line between this and Paul's L-word phobia that he's carried around his entire life. Yeah. But also, I tend to think that sort of big feelings in general were not well received in his home. I think that he is a very sensitive, very emotional person. Yeah, I think so, too. Um, and even his tendency to kind of shut down or go expressionless or go cool, even that, to me, that seems like a defense mechanism, that he learned to do that as a matter of necessity because big feelings were not appreciated. Well, I think it's displays of big feelings that are, correct. Uh, correct. you know, I think even Jim accepts <laughs> that, like, we have big feelings and that's okay. Yes. Jim wasn't especially ashamed to cry. He just could not verbalize feelings. Here's another quote from Mike. Thank you very much. Which sheds a different light on jim mm -hmm. so mike said he'd teach us how to drink in pubs under age and give us the money to get around in he'd pour quadruple four-finger measures of neat alcohol for each Odd. and every party guest wow <laughs> he'd tip the tunnel man who collected your money who else but jim mccartney would tip the tunnel man okay I think it's weird to slide each guest four shots. <laughs> Beginning of every party. I mean, I guess he's just trying to get the party turned. Yeah. But that's a lot of alcohol, friends. It's, it's a <laughs> lot. Well, and teaching your sons to drink underage, that's, that's something. <laughs> it's a choice. Well, I think the legal drinking age was 16 at the time. 16 like do you, they could drink in pubs at 16 i think so oh geez well that's not great but different times i you know i actually according to the internet uh you could actually buy beer and cider and stuff at 16 so i guess jim is teaching his 15 year olds how to break the law and buy booze oh my god or it could i mean they could also buy hard liquor at 18. So hopefully he wasn't getting them that at 17. Hopefully it was just beer at 15, I guess. Yeah, I I don't know how unusual that was. It might have been relatively normal, but so was alcoholism. Right. <laughs> that was relatively normal also, or at least normalized. So, you know, but it would still have deleterious effects. Absolutely. It also explains the, the village-leveling macarita recipe. My god. It's pretty... I got drunk just reading the recipe. <laughs> yeah. 
but yeah, it just it just seems to me that there's a lot going under the surface with Jim McCartney. He's not a simple character. He's a stand-up guy who also showed some pretty poor judgment at times. A loving father who also hit his son into his late teens. A stiff upper lip optimist who became suicidal when his wife died. So there is definitely some duality in Jim. Mm. And Paul may have been getting mixed messages from him. Or at least an element of do as I say, not as I do. Which might have been the result of Jim's own self-awareness and just an attempt to compensate for his own shortcomings. But that kind of inconsistency is still rough on kids because they don't understand what's behind it. Yeah. And it may have been difficult for Paul to predict which dad he was going to get day to day. Maybe Jim's affectionate and laissez-faire one day, but harsh and controlling on another. So to avoid being hurt, Paul may have felt he had to change how he behaved day to day. And so the dualism gets passed down. Even with all of that, Jim is remembered universally in his family as a wonderful person. Mm -hmm. I wonder if Paul would have the expectation that if he behaves that way, his family is going to make excuses for him as well. Because ultimately, this is how Jim is remembered in history. Right. Seems like on the one hand would be a gift that Paul would be happy to give him. But on the other hand, how could he not resent it a little bit? A little bit. Yeah. These are the building blocks of a person's character. Exactly. And Jim is his biggest role model. Absolutely. Far and away. So you want to know who he's modeling his behavior after. Jim is very, very present. Stable, but overbearing. Like an an extremely looming figure in Paul's life. Yes. Yeah, my book has got a hole in it. Yeah, my book has got a hole in it. Yeah, my book has got a hole in it. I can't buy no beer. Well, I'm standing on the corner. Hey, listeners. Did you know that Paul McCartney is cheap? Dunan references Paul's preoccupation with money several times, in several different contexts, but it doesn't adequately explore why Paul is like that. Tunin makes it a priority to show the reader that Paul is tight with money, and seemingly implies that this is part of his inherent personality. Now, on page 493, Lewison does quote Paul as saying, My dad instilled in me never get heavily in debt, as a result of which I bought a cheap guitar. So there is, in Tunin, a speck of effort to present (laughs) Paul's viewpoint on this issue, the single quote. What we're going to do now is take a moment to really dig in and try to understand why Paul is like this. Mm -hmm. Which is something Tunin never, ever does. Correct. Apparently it's worth mentioning several times, but not worth analyzing. Yes, it's definitely presented as a character failure Mm -hmm. with no underlying causes. Right. But there are many, many indications 
that Paul experienced some pretty substantial financial insecurity growing up. He has discussed his anxieties around money that began in his childhood, and as discussed in episode four, Shells and Barriers, after his mother passed away, Paul asked, what will we do without her money? Yeah, and speaking of that, the more we look into it, the more there may be the possibility that it was a real threat. Not just because Mary was the breadwinner and Jim didn't bring home a lot of money, which even Tune In acknowledges, but also because Jim liked to gamble. His taste for gambling is well known and acknowledged by the McCartney family, but also downplayed mm-hmm. by everyone, including Paul. Even though at one point Jim's stepdaughter Ruth mentioned that post Beatlemania, Jim actually lost a house. This was, of course, a house Paul had bought for him. So Paul had to buy it again for Jim. Point being, it's not completely known how stable a provider Jim was. And as the older child, it might be that Paul worried or feared that maybe he was going to have to quit school and look after his baby brother or provide for the whole family. Like, we just don't know. All we know for sure is that Paul was extremely driven to succeed and has never, ever, ever stopped working. Yeah, and Mary seems to have been similar. She grew up dirt poor and worked really hard all her life and valued industry and hard work and self-discipline. Yeah, too irrational, like almost superstitious or maybe religious level. Absolutely. She wouldn't let Jim buy her a washing machine because they were immoral, apparently. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, this is a psychological issue for Paul. One that was likely inherited, as many issues often are, from his upbringing. We think it is abundantly clear that he had money insecurity issues, and we'll offer more examples that support this in a bit. I've said this before, but Paul has money issues the same way that some people have abandonment issues or body image issues. And when you have those kinds of issues they don't go away if you get what you want right like someone with an eating disorder doesn't get cured by becoming a gorgeous world-renowned supermodel that's not going to fix it right that's more likely to exacerbate it actually Mm -hmm. just as being thin doesn't cure anorexia right and just as becoming beloved by millions of fans didn't cure john lennon's abandonment issues Right. In that same way, becoming rich did not cure Paul of his money issues. Exactly. So this is not a matter of just not having money. This is a thing, like every issue, something you have to work through. You have to identify and work on it. Yeah. Okay. And some people are going to be susceptible to it and some people are not. Yeah. Now, to be clear, that doesn't automatically preclude the possibility that Paul could be selfish on occasion you know of course a person obviously can be simultaneously anxious and selfish Mm -hmm. right but when paul's money anxiety isn't factored in or even acknowledged 
the reader isn't given the chance to make a fair judgment of Paul in a given situation. Right. How, how are we supposed to evaluate whether it is a case of just him being anxious or him being selfish? Mm -hmm. So we will now give you some stories and some quotes not included in TuneIn, which will elucidate the side of Paul McCartney for us. Quarryman Colin Hanton tells a story in his book Prefab about going to a quarryman gig on the bus. And for whatever reason, it transpired that they needed to take an extra bus at some point in the journey, incurring an extra fee. He writes, as we did so, Paul had a major panic attack. Like the rest of us, he hadn't expected to have to make this additional bus ride and immediately realized that once he paid his fare to and from Didsbury, he wouldn't have enough money to get back home to Liverpool. Colin then writes that, Paul was still freaking out when a random guy walked down the aisle toward the exit and silently handed him two shillings and kept walking. Shocked and relieved, Paul yelled, Thank you! I love you! As the guy disembarked from the bus, <laughs> which made John crack up, obviously. Mm -hmm. And Colin writes, to this day, I can hear him shouting those words, and we all just burst out laughing. <laughs> okay, so Colin says that Paul had a major panic attack and was freaking out. Yeah, <laughs> which is weird. It's, yeah, it's an overreaction. It's an overreaction, yeah. Now, here's a quote from Stuart Sutcliffe's sister, Pauline, that we shared in episode six, A Prolonged Jealousy. As a reminder, she wrote that, Stu had also told me how he and John used to borrow money from Paul with the sole purpose of not paying him back. They enjoyed winding him up. Again, that info was not included in TuneIn, but it is very relevant backstory, not just because it sheds light on the Paul-Stuart conflict, but because it presents Paul's money issues as a known source of anxiety to him. Yeah, They enjoyed winding him up, so they knew it would upset him. Here's another tidbit, this time from Alan Williams, talking about the early days of John and Paul in Liverpool. He said, in those days, they used to hang about as coffee bar layabouts. <laughs> I can still see them now. Paul and John having toast and John wanting jam on the toast and Paul telling him off. John, you must be mad. It's a penny extra. <laughs> Okay, now, as far as we know, John and Paul did not have joint checking in 1958 or whenever <laughs> this was. So why would Paul even have an opinion on how John spends his money? Yeah. Do you see what we're saying here? If Paul is mentally budgeting John's money and the idea of John paying a penny extra for jam is stressing him out, yeah. clearly he has a problem. Yeah. John, you must be mad, you madman. Yes, right. John, you're going to end up in the street <laughs> buying all that jam. He also said once, in total sincerity, that he couldn't play Monopoly mm -hmm. without getting upset. <laughs> yeah. Not board games or card games or sports in general, but specifically Monopoly because of yeah. the fake money. Yeah. He says like it would upset him when the Beatles played played Monopoly. Okay. Now <laughs> again, 
to be clear, we're not saying that this is a free pass for Paul to act any way he likes. Of course not. Or that anybody needs to like this feature of his psyche <laughs> and find it endearing. But we think readers should at least know this about him. Absolutely. But instead, in Tune In, we just get a narrative of Paul being cheap for no reason. It's never because he is poor or anxious. Or anxious about being poor. Which, for the record, doesn't require he be literally homeless or starving. Now, we know he was sending money home from Hamburg, not to pay off his instruments like John and George were, as Tunin specifically reports, which to me indicates that Paul's money was actually going to his family. Right. And we're not saying that George and John weren't generous and didn't give money to their families or relatives as well. We're just saying that it's hardly as if Paul is hoarding his money and then blowing it on himself. I mean, we're told multiple times that Paul refuses to spend money on his own instruments. Yeah. So it's not, a, you know, it's not about being selfish in that sense. Right. He just can't, he cannot treat himself. <laughs> yeah. It's too stressful. Yeah. As Daphne read, Tunin does quote him one time as, you know, saying his dad gave him advice never to get into debt. And a couple of years ago, Paul mentioned on Howard Stern, Paul said that his dad had gotten into trouble with debt, which is why he was warning Paul not to. Right. And so that's that's the other sort of added layer. Like there's there's being anxious about the money itself, but then there's also the anxiety of having to answer for what he's done with his money to his dad which i'm sure many people know can be very very stressful well plus or minus the thought that he's gonna have to take care of his dad as well right which, again i'm not saying jim was a bum okay but no. we're told that he doesn't make a lot of money you know we know he wasn't the primary breadwinner in the house mm -hmm. he's older than most of uh yep. the parents of paul's peers you know yep. he just because he married late he married very late good point yeah in 1961 jim is almost 60 and paul is the eldest child and of course on his first big payout as a beetle the first thing he did was buy his dad a house <laughs> yeah even as a beetle paul is not splashing his money around he lives he lives in a three-bedroom house or whatever. He lives right. in the, uh, the Asher's attic. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. He lives in an attic, then in a three-bedroom house, and then in a one-bedroom shack. I don't ever want to say that, like, Paul doesn't care about money. Because in no. some ways, he cares way too, too much. much. Yes. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. But he's happy to live in somebody's attic. That's, like, one of the most interesting weird stories about paul told by miles this guy was the biggest rock star of the time in the 60s and like he's living in the asher's attic with and he's got yeah. like gold records under his bed like shoved under his bed he's weird Just a little spoon of your precious love.
All right, we mentioned Jim's gambling. Yeah. Daphne, can you give us more info on that? Yeah, sure. So this is from Mike's book, Thank You Very Much. Mike wrote, One of Dad's hobbies at this time was betting. Not that Dad was an insatiable gambler. It's just that he didn't know when to stop. <laughs> okay, Mike. <laughs> So yeah, this is, you know, that's a perfect example. That and the, you know, he could have, he could have beaten us up and would have had every justification for doing so. (laughs) Those are two prime examples of why, like, we gotta, you gotta look a little deeper with these people. (laughs) They're not gonna tell you, they're gonna tell you, and then they're gonna tell you the opposite of what they just told you. Yeah. And I don't even think it's on purpose at all. All right, so Mike writes that amazing non sequitur and then he tells the story of jim betting on the horses with the goal of sending his mum off on a holiday so that's why he got in debt hmm. which is maybe true or maybe not it sounds like kind of an ass covering thing someone might say if they're embarrassed about <laughs> yeah. getting into debt Honey. but whatever and mike continues after a series of disastrous little flutters on the horses Dad became seriously in debt to the bookies and was hauled before Mr. Hannay at work, who said, Ooh. Well, lad, you're really in hot water this time. Oh my god. So, so I assume the bookies contacted Jim's boss? Oh my god. Right? However, fortunately, the story ends very happily and very luckily because Jim's boss agrees to pay the debt and take repayments out of Jim's wages over the next year. Oh, boy. Okay. Well, that answers a lot of questions. Mike also reported in his book that Jim couldn't pass by a slot machine without having a go. So (laughs) this is a thing. It's a thing. And to be clear, Tunin does mention a few times that Jim regularly gambled on horse races, but there's no indication that this may have been a problem. But if you're poor and worried about money and raising two sons, yet you're losing money to gambling, that might mean there's a problem. Okay, so dad doesn't make a lot of money and also likes to gamble. Mm -hmm. Well, and also seems to be the kind of person who wants to like buy everyone a drink at the pub yeah and, like give big tips yeah you know it, it, it can be generosity or it can be out of pride being like of course i can afford to be generous to people yeah now what might the effect of this have been on the family and on paul here's a quote from 2020 this is a new york times magazine Obviously, this is post-tune-in, so mm-hmm. not something that could have been included in the book. However, it's relevant here, so we'll go ahead and share it. Yeah, okay. The question is, how do you think about money these days? Paul says, it has obviously changed. What has stayed the same is the central core. When I was in Liverpool as a kid, I used to listen to people's conversations. I remember a couple of women going on about money. Ah, me and my husband, we're always arguing about money. And I remember thinking very consciously, okay, I'll solve that. I will try to get money. That set me off on the, let's not have too many problems with money trail. 
All right, so he goes to the emotional stress created by conflict over money between husbands and wives. Interesting. Yeah, he's crediting one overheard conversation with setting him off on this trail. <laughs> yes, by some strangers. I, uh, yeah, some stra- I just I definitely, happened to hear. <laughs> yeah, it definitely was not anyone connected to me in, in no, my house arguing. Does about definitely not my parents. Money. Mary's father, you know, she was raised dirt poor. At some point, he was able to uh, have some successful businesses and build up some wealth, and he lost it all gambling on the horses. Oh my god! Yeah, here's how Mike put it in his book. In the end, Mum's dad lost all his money on the GGs, with the result that life at home for Mum and her brothers wasn't that rosy. So, I think we can put two and two together there. With regard to the money issues, you know, again, just to be clear, like, we don't expect Paul's friends in the 50s and 60s to be aware of his issues. Oh, of course not. Of course not. You know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. to them, it would just be annoying, and he would come off as cheap and selfish. Right. And I understand that, and I'm fine with that. I don't think Paul knows where those issues are coming from. Yeah. He probably just thinks he's he's cheap and selfish, too, but he can't help it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. we're talking about a long time ago, you know, as Paul has said many times, nobody went to therapy. Right. We just didn't know stuff back then. So I'm not angry at them for teasing him about being stingy with his cigarettes or whatever. That's That's fine. It's his problem, is what I'm saying. Like it really yes. is Paul's problem. Yes. Um, yes. But nowadays, one of the major things that has happened over the last few decades is now we're taking into account more people's differences mm-hmm. and how those differences affect people's uh, behavior, people's mm-hmm. cognitive abilities, people's everything. Yeah, Paul's brain about money is a smoke detector that goes off whenever anyone makes toast. Overreaction. The more we know, the more compassionate that we can be. Paul doesn't have these issues on purpose. Right. He doesn't want them. Right. No, he (laughs) He doesn't want to be freaking out over a penny for jam. No, he does not want to be that person. Um, And it's not anything that he did. It just is kind of the way he is. And everybody has to deal, including him. Yeah. <laughs> yes. It's no excuse for him to ever treat anyone badly. Like, you know, Correct. it's not okay to make your problems yes. someone else's problems all <laughs> right, the time. Right. To the point that you're hurting them. Like, that's not okay. Yeah, but is he going to give his accountant more of a hard time than the other guys? Yeah, Probably. he is. Uh-huh. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Like, is it a surprise that he goes over the books a lot more than the other Beatles do? Or scrutinizes Brian's decisions more? Of course not. No, it is not. That shit's gonna keep him up at night.
So, Mary's death might be the topic we've gotten the most um, commentary. Uh, usually people who haven't listened to the episode yet. Uh, saying that, well, the reason why Julia's death got so much more information is because John talked about Julia's death's effect on him a lot more. That's actually, objectively, not true. As of 1980, yes, John had talked more about Julia than Paul had about Mary. Right. But it's been a long time since 1980. There were many years between 1980 and 2014 where Paul talked a lot and others have talked a lot about it as well. So forgive us, but we're going to spend some time on this since, again, this is probably where we've gotten the most pushback and we want to clarify. Bob Spitz tracked down Auntie Dill, who made the surprising statement that Mary was actually diagnosed with cancer much earlier in 1948. Lewison seems determined not to borrow research from any prior Beatles biographies, which is his choice. Yeah, and if I had to guess, to me it seems more likely that Dill is might be misremembering this. Well, maybe, or, or maybe she's misinformed about parts of it. How can we possibly know, right? We, we can't know. Okay. She would, she would have been super old. She's still a primary source, and this is a big deal. Yeah. So, any which way, it would have been nice for him to make an effort to establish the facts, or yeah. at least acknowledge that there are conflicting accounts. I mean, oftentimes there are conflicting accounts. Mm-hmm. You can't just omit them. From history, you have to provide the conflicting accounts. Uh, based, I presume, on his interviews with Dill, Spitz wrote an incredibly detailed and painful passage about the boy's last visit to Mary in the hospital. Dill apparently said that Mary looked ghastly in the hospital that day, and she told Spitz that when Paul and Mike came, they climbed into bed with Mary and were, quote, romping all over her. And Dill wanted them to get out of the bed because Mary just had surgery, but Mary wanted them to stay in the bed with her. Meanwhile, Jim stood watching with tears in his eyes. And of course, we know direct from Paul in many years from now that he saw blood on her hospital sheets and that he called the experience horrible and terrible. Yeah. And that he remembers Mary crying on that last visit. Well, and if Paul doesn't know what's wrong with her and doesn't exactly know what's happening, of course all he's going to remember are these traumatizing snapshots. Mm-hmm. He's not getting a full picture. He's not reviewing her chart. What I'm saying is like he's not going to have a clear narrative the way that an adult is going to have. Oh, of course. So here's a reminder of how Tunin presents the boy's last visit. This is from page 154, quoting directly here. Paul and Mike visited, though still not knowing what was wrong. Mary put on a brave face, and they never saw her again. Now, again, we don't expect Lewison to quote Bob Spitz, even if Spitz is reporting Dill's account. But A, Paul's the one who said in many years from now that he saw blood on the sheets and that Mary cried that day. So Tunin's cold-as-ice description is completely baffling and kind of heartless. B. 
listeners, this is why you should seek out other sources in addition to tune in. And see, even if Lewison absolutely cannot use other authors' research, which clearly shows this was a deeply awful and traumatic event, he still can, and he absolutely should, at the very least, refrain from creating the exact opposite impression. Yes, that is inexplicable and unforgivable. Here's some more readily available information. Hunter Davies, in his biography on the Beatles, wrote, Paul and Mike both cried on their own in bed that night. For days afterward, Paul prayed for her to come back. He would say, daft prayers, you know. If you bring her back, I'll be very, very good for always. I thought it just shows how stupid religion is. See, the prayers didn't work when I really needed them to. Right, so Mary's death made Paul not believe in God anymore. Seems relevant. Here's another quote from good old Dill. This was also in the Bob Spitz book. Dill said, Paul used to lock himself in the toilet and play the guitar. It was the only place he could disengage himself from the tragedy. We discussed Mike's description of Paul immediately after Mary's death in our episode, Shells and Barriers. Here's a portion that we did not read. Mike wrote, Paul spent most of his time around the house, doing just as much housework as he had to, and no more, and strumming away at his guitar. But at least he made new friends at school, and this was important, for it drew him out of himself a bit. It pleased Dad and me, for he really was a drag around the house. Going off everything that Mike has said about Paul's behavior, as a reminder, he said that Paul's very character seemed to change, that Paul distanced himself from friends, didn't bother going out with them or going out with girls, that he would sit in the dark, strumming his guitar for hours in silence. He also wrote that nothing, it seemed, mattered to Paul anymore. In addition to that, there's whatever Mike is referring to when he comments on how hard Paul was to live with at this time. Mm. He doesn't give us specifics, but he repeats it several times. Like we just read, Mike wrote, Paul really was a drag around the house, which, oh my god, is drag like McCartney Family Code? for when people die um, but he also wrote that Paul went into a deep blue hermit sort of mood which was anything but pleasant for us while it lasted he wrote that Paul wasn't very nice to live with at this period and he wrote that Paul was hard to live with in those days he was wrapped up in himself and apparently he didn't want people breaking in on his life to me it sounds like Paul's behavior went beyond a typical presentation of grief though yeah i'm picturing there was a lot of grunting snapping just being terse and unpleasant anything but pleasant not very nice to live with and being wrapped up in himself and not wanting people to break in that to me sounds less like paul is screaming at people 
and more yeah. that he is refusing to engage yes and just sort of mm, you know mm -hmm. brushing people off in a kind of rude way yeah i guess what i'm struck by most is that paul is retreating socially not just from mike but from the outside world and his friends and girlfriends and other people in a way that Mike and Jim were not, apparently. Or maybe just for a longer period of time. And from everything we know, that was out of character for Paul. Mm -hmm. It's also possible that Paul was behaving in ways which were actually fairly typical by normal standards, but were unacceptable according to McCartney family standards of optimism and <laughs> repression of all negativity so but anyway taking all of this into account I think that we're looking at a very depressed adolescent here who is self-isolating to the point that his family who are also grieving of course are concerned and confused given what we know about Paul's depressions after the Beatles breakup and after Linda's death and from things that Paul himself and others, like Denny Lane, for example, have said about how Paul consciously does not allow himself to sink. Because if he goes down, he goes way down. Mm -hmm. I think this is an important aspect of Paul's psyche, which could play into why he finds it hard to personally, verbally express negativity or vulnerability. But those feelings exist. They are there in him. And in my opinion, they do come out in the form of that moodiness, which many people comment on. And they come out in his songs about other people being hurt and lonely and disappointed and misunderstood. Paul is so preoccupied by those themes. People living lives of quiet desperation figure so prominently in his work which to me is incredibly striking because on the surface, his own life has not been like that at all. Yeah. He's lived a very colorful, successful, fulfilling life, and he is genuinely grateful for that. Yet there's a big part of him that notices and empathizes with people whose dreams never came true. Why is that? I think it's an important topic, but apparently Lewison disagrees. As a reminder, this is what he wrote about Paul's outward reaction to Mary's death. Paul's way of dealing with the crisis was to seem unaffected by it. He just carried on. He got his head down and pushed forward. With all due respect, I think that is totally objectively incorrect i don't think paul seemed unaffected at all mike noticed it mm -hmm. dill noticed it auntie jen noticed it iris caldwell noticed jim noticed so however much paul is trying to seem unaffected maybe he was unsuccessful dusty durbin noticed right Salowich reported that Durbin sent a letter round to Paul's other teachers, suggesting tolerance of any sense of strangeness emanating from Paul McCartney. Dusty is also quoted 
in Salowich's book saying that Paul had a bit of a rough patch then. I think it shattered him a lot. And then Paul has spoken about this a few times. Here's one example. This is a Hot Press Magazine interview from 2002. Uh, he's actually asked about Mary's death in the context of its relation to Linda's death. Okay, so Paul said, I'd seen it happen as a 14-year-old. I didn't know what it does. I didn't know what it was then, because in those days they just said, your mom's ill. They didn't tell us until much later that it was breast cancer. We didn't know. She was in hospital, and then she was gone, kind of thing. It was all very quick. It was just terrifying. You just didn't have any information at all. But what I did have was this thing of noticing my mom getting tired and things like that, and noticing my dad saying, well, why don't you go and have 40 winks? Those are clear memories to me. Paul noticed his dad saying that and would remember it his entire life. It was terrifying. Not having that information and the suddenness of it was terrifying to him. Reminder, Tunin never used any, any words like that, any emotional words in describing Paul's reaction to his mother's death. And you can see why that silence after the fact and lack of information would be frightening to a child because if they don't know what happened, how can they possibly trust that it's not going to happen again? Everything you love can be snatched away from you in a day with no warning. That's obviously true. Yeah. That is a heavy lesson to learn at 14, though. I mean, that's a recipe for anxiety and control issues, if I've ever read one. Paul also seems to have carried around quite a bit of guilt about Mary's death for years in anthology. In anthology, he described an instance where he um, at least unconsciously in anthology he described an instance where he mouthed off at her as a kid and added when she died I remember thinking you asshole, why did you do that? Why did you have to put your mom down? I think I've just about got over it now, Doctor. Uh, in many years from now, Paul also said he thought that Mary's work on behalf of the family was probably why she died of a stress-related illness in the end. So that's heavy. So, uh, to conclude this section, there's actually plenty to write about Mary's death and Paul's immediate reaction and the long-term effects on him. Quite a bit of this information comes from sources that TuneIn uses elsewhere. But Lewison chose not to do that. You won't admit you love me And so how am I ever to know You always tell me Next, we're going to offer you several quotes from people who have nice things to say about Paul's personality. Because that's another bit of pushback we've gotten. John comes off better because everyone has nice things to say about him, and maybe no one has any nice things to say about Paul. 
Well, here are a few examples that could have been in Tune In, either from existing sources or via Lewison's own interviews with these very people. But they are not. Here's a quote from Mersey Beat publisher Bill Harry. He said, Paul would come and participate in all the art college events. For instance, we would have Panto Day every year in which everyone from the art college and university would collect for charity around the city. Paul, I remember, was always the most pleasant to talk to. Very nice and easy to chat to. And he gave off such a pleasant aura all the time. And then he goes on to add that Stuart and John were intense and you always felt you had to be on your toes. And George was extremely shy. And then he adds, but it was always a nice experience being with Paul. As we read in the prolonged jealousy episode, um, there are many warm and complimentary quotes about Paul from Astrid, none of which are in tune in. Here's another one. <laughs> in 2001, Astrid said, Paul is still like he was then, very lovely, deeply modest, and very well mannered. He nearly broke his tongue talking German to my mother. He had his phrase book with him. He always tried to be the translator because he had these three or five words of German that he knew. <laughs> Paul gravitating toward the mum in the room. Naturally. Yeah. So Astrid, not very complimentary of Paul's German. <laughs> oh, well, yeah. <laughs> but very yeah. complimentary of his efforts. <laughs> Yeah, but the main takeaway is Astrid said he is and was lovely, deeply modest, and very well-mannered. Speaking of Hamburg, Paul actually made quite a few friends there. Contrary to the impression given in Tune In, as we showed in our prolonged jealousy episode, before we begin, we're just going to say we're not going to do goofy german accents you're welcome <laughs> <laughs> so in his 2001 book the beatles diary volume one barry miles wrote about rosa the restroom attendant for a time paul lived in her small bungalow down on the docks rosa is then quoted i remember when young paul used to practice guitar on the roof of my little place we used to get crowds of burly old Hamburg duckers hanging around, just listening. They shouted out things in German, but Paul didn't understand them. It's odd, they were a very hard audience who didn't really know what Paul was playing, but somehow they took to him. <laughs> okay, adorable, troubadour, roof-perching, docker-charming Paul. In a 2006 interview for, forgive me, Deutsche Landfunk Kultur, <laughs> Hamburg bouncer and friend of the Beatles, Horst Fascher, said, My favorite was and is Paul McCartney, because oh. he was just a nice guy. You could rely on him. Very sweet. One of the Beatles orbiting Hamburg buddies was Hans Eichbron. He wrote a memoir which as far as we know has not been translated to English. So full disclosure, this is from Google Translate. <laughs> I had the best contact with Paul. Not only was he the only one of them who knew a little German, he also was the most likable to me. Ike also tells a fantastic story about a mix-up <laughs> with Paul. 
he wrote, Paul came down from the stage and asked my girlfriend Katya and me if we had any music requests. There was a song called Till There Was You. Katya whispered to me that I should wish for this song. It was a love song, so it didn't really fit in with the rock and roll they usually played. Unfortunately, Paul didn't realize that I had only passed on Katya's music request and thought for years that it was my favorite song. <laughs> <laughs> Every time I came to the top 10 or later to the star club and he saw me, he played Till There Was You. It was pretty embarrassing for me, firstly because it didn't <laughs> suit my own taste, and secondly because the rockers teased me with gay gestures and suggestions. <laughs> <laughs> I presume there's a little bit being lost in translation there. But, but um, that's the gist of it, yeah. yeah. And Ike said he was, quote, flattered Paul took me into his confidence. Ike and Paul spent quite a bit of time one-on-one -on -one. There are fun stories in his book about one time Paul wanted to hook up with a girl, not in the bunk. <laughs> so Ike volunteered that he could use Ike's house as a fuck pad. <laughs> and they almost got in a car wreck. And uh, one time all the Beatles go over to his house and have like a little bonfire. And John like singes his ass jumping over the fire. <laughs> oh, yeah. And also John kissed Ike on the mouth twice <laughs> later explaining oh i thought you were gay and by the way in front of all the other Beatles, yes. yeah so it's not like they don't know for anybody who thinks that they don't know they know they know next we want to share some amazing quotes from iris caldwell from chris salowich's book our house was an escape for him my mother was so easy to get along with so he'd just come back to our place and eat cheese sandwiches and drink tea, talking all night. He'd idolized his own mother. It was like losing a limb when she died, and he'd had to rebuild himself. He felt he had a responsibility to his mother's memory, to say to her, I'm still me. He had to show her he was a survivor. He couldn't let his mum or dad or brother see him going to pieces. He had to block her death out as a matter of self-preservation. It had been a bad age for him to lose her because it's a transition period. Suddenly you are given responsibility. You realize there's more to life than you thought and that the world is not a very nice place. But you still need the reassurance of those parental figures in the background. He hadn't been able to put any pressure on his dad. In fact, his dad, for all his exuberance, was leaning on him. So Paul had had to prove that he was strong. Well done. Thank you, Iris. That just succinctly explains so much about Paul's character mm -hmm. during the Beatles' rise to stardom throughout their entire career, and in fact, throughout Paul's life. Mm -hmm. And to state the obvious, if Iris Caldwell is making these observations, then... Obviously, this is something that is still weighing on Paul and was not invisible to the people close to him. Right. She's talking about the period when she knew him in the early 60s. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there's absolutely no reason to present it as if he actually was unaffected. Here's another revealing quote, this time from Thelma Pickles, John's art college classmate who you may remember from the No Greater Buddy episode. She and John dated, briefly. Thelma subsequently went out with Paul a few times in the early 60s. 
Yeah, during the time period covered by Tunin. And Tunin does mention that they dated, but we don't get anything like this quote. All right, so what did Thelma have to say about Paul? Thelma said, Paul would never actively treat women like shit. I don't think it was in his nature to treat anyone like shit. But John would. He wouldn't hesitate. Even though John was incredibly sensitive, he was terrified of exposing himself. Paul was a much more sensitive human being, in the true sense of the word, because he was caring and thoughtful and wouldn't do things without thinking. Wow. Well, I definitely feel like that is useful insight. Yeah, uh, Lewison did interview Thelma and did get a quote from her about dating Paul, but it didn't say anything like that. Yeah, it was just that he picked her up and took her to the cavern and what that experience was like. Yes. Well, there you go. Caring and thoughtful and wouldn't do things without thinking. Now, are we saying that Paul was perfect? <laughs> of course we are not. No. And tune in happily detailed all of his shortcomings. Um, we are merely offering a counterbalance here. Mm -hmm. I like that she calls him sensitive. Here are two more quotes saying the same thing from Mike's Portrait of Paul. They say sensitivity often goes with intelligence, and certainly I'd say this was true of Paul. Although on the surface, he tried to give the impression that he was a fairly tough, swashbuckling, mildly tearaway character. Underneath, there was a great deal of thoughtfulness and real tenderness. Mike calls him thoughtful also. Yep. Thoughtful and sensitive. Wow. And in his book, A Cellar Full of Noise, Brian wrote, Inside, Paul has a great tenderness and great feeling, which are sometimes concealed by an angry exterior. There's a place where lovers go to cry their troubles away let's talk about paul's personality okay his demeanor can be perplexing he appears to be a contradiction his oft mentioned and oft mocked self-consciousness awkwardness and eagerness to please on the one hand combined with his frequent grace in social situations and ability to put others at ease can be a real puzzle. That puzzle can both attract and repel people. Yes, it's not unusual to hear someone mock Paul's awkward presentation and just sort of odd mannerisms and then immediately or simultaneously accuse him of being smooth slippery sly pr man <laughs> yeah and this is probably one of the trickiest things to nail down about about paul is this contradiction like is his diplomacy and people person skills are is that innate or was it learned since even tune in acknowledges that paul's ability to apply gloss is crucial to the Beatles' success, that seems like an important question to ask. Mm-hmm. And how, you know, what is the relationship between that side of him, those abilities, and that awareness to the fact that 
sometimes he's extremely unself-aware and just odd and awkward. So we have compiled a, a few quotes that might help us with this question. I think something that gets lost a lot is just how odd Paul is. He is an odd duck. He is. Yes. Again, and... not performatively weird. <laughs> no. <laughs> He's out there going, what are you talking about? I'm completely normal. I'm so, so normal. Would you like me to make a list of all the ways that I'm normal? I can I prove keep... it. Now, one of the ways I think Paul is odd is that talking is really not his forte. <laughs> Especially if there's a camera on him. Mm. And whether that's just an innate brain wiring thing or whether it's emotional or a hang up or it has to do with how he was raised or the trauma of being world famous yeah yeah we we can't really say um here's a quote from him about it it's from 1967 but clearly he is talking about something that's just part of him he told the international times everything i say will come out just a little bit different i don't mean on the transcript but as it leaves my mind and comes through my mouth, it gets a little bit messed up, just around about the mouth, where the words start doing it. Okay. <laughs> around about the mouth, not exactly in the mouth. I couldn't tell you, but somewhere between the brain yeah. and the mouth. If I had to pinpoint it, I'd say it was the moment that my tongue hit the roof of my mouth. Yeah, the words start doing it. And that's when I can just see that it's all going to go terribly all gonna wrong. Go pear-shaped. <laughs> and he's like, he's making sure to reassure the journalist. I don't mean on the transcript. I don't mean you're writing this down wrong. I mean, it's me. It's a me problem. It's not you. It's me. And going along with that, Hunter Davies said of him, the irony was, and still is, that John's awfulness to people, his rudeness and cruelty, made people like him more. Whereas Paul's genuine niceness made many people suspicious, accusing him of being calculating. Paul does look ahead, seeing what might happen, working out the effect of certain actions. But he often ends up tying himself in knots, not necessarily getting what he thought he wanted. I think there is some insecurity in Paul's nature, which makes him try so hard, work so hard. It also means he can be easily hurt by criticism. I think we can see that through his whole life. I see it when he's being interviewed. And, you know, this is based on vibes. Just me watching a lot of footage of Paul over the years. That I think Paul's concerns over coming off the wrong way make him come off that way. <laughs> It's sort of, you know, he manifests it accidentally by by hoping he doesn't do this certain thing. He ends up doing it. Yeah. Hey, don't yeah. put salt in your eyes. Don't put salt in your eyes. <laughs> put salt in your eyes. Put salt in your eyes. <laughs> in our creative whirlwind episode, we mentioned a 90s uh, interview where Paul said he had a kind of dyslexia as a kid. And in his 2021 lyrics book, he revealed that he experienced synesthesia as a child. Yeah, well, the man made a painting titled C Minor. Yeah, he sure did. Yeah, so he's definitely got some atypical stuff going on in there. 
Yeah. And many years from now, Paul tells a great story about how uh, Jim, as secretary of the Speak Gardening Club, would send Paul and Mike out door to door to solicit people to give a donation or to join that <laughs> club. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and Paul said, he had us out aged about nine. I was virtually a door-to-door salesman by the time I was 12. We used to go, knock, knock, would you like to join the gardening club? What's in it for me, then? Why should I? Well, there's free manure, and you can get seeds at a discount. And I had this spiel. And the people would go, (laughs) fuck off, piss off. So so it was a very good way to learn the territory. Shit, I'm not going to that house again. He's an old drunk. I remember a blind couple there, and there was only one seeing member of the family. It was quite bizarre, really, looking back on it. My brain's full of all that. For some reason, I worked like a bastard when I was a kid. I would be out collecting jam jars door-to-door, doing Baba job. I was certainly not shy with people. I think because of all these activities my dad encouraged us into. I think it's probably very good for your confidence with people. It was all right. That was my upbringing. Wow. That is such a 1940s. 50 story right can you imagine sending your nine-year-old just out into the neighborhood going up to people's front doors yeah like drunks and people who are saying like fuck off to a (laughs) nine-year-old asking them to join the gardening club like it's fuck out of here kid all right sir thank you (laughs) have a good day I agree. That's some character building stuff for sure. Well, yeah, that'll that'll teach you some lessons. It certainly will. Seems like he definitely <laughs> learned his way around the block. Um, yeah. Wouldn't be advised today because of no. the safety aspect. Yeah. Oh my God. He could have been dragged into so many houses. Yep. So many terrible things done to him. Yep. Oh, there but for the grace of God, Daphne. Am I right? You are right. And that would uh, create a lot of confidence. Going yeah. door to door is very hard. Soul destroying? Yeah. Yeah, so I think it's relevant that the you know so-called PR man of the Beatles was virtually a door-to-door salesman by the time he was 12. Because his dad was a salesman and you mm. know, made him and his brother do that. In the paragraph previous to this and many years from now, Paul tells how Jim would send him and Mike to get ga- to gather horse manure too. Oh my god, he had to scoop horse yes. shit up. Yes. Jim kept his eye open for horse manure, and it was the boy's job to collect it. <laughs> Jim's interest in gardening led him to become the secretary of the Speak Horticultural Society. What? <laughs> And when they were living in Western Avenue, he sent Paul and Mike out canvassing for new members. Wow. In Speak. Wow. Just as a reminder, Speak <laughs> is a pretty rough neighborhood. No wonder people are slamming the door. Oh right? Fuck off. <laughs> I wonder if they ever got a single member to sign up 
Mike's just along for the ride. <laughs> yeah. Mike doesn't have lines. <laughs> One other thing that I'd like to talk about, Paul's confidence or arrogance, if you prefer to look at it that way, is often emphasized. Paul is sometimes called arrogant, egomaniacal. Yeah, not in tune in. No, but he, but elsewhere. Yeah, that's part of his, yeah. Reputation. image reputation mm-hmm. right and this is not even to combat that because perhaps he is egomaniacal and arrogant um yeah i have no trouble believing that yeah yeah and so we're not we're not trying to say he isn't we're just trying to add to that we're suggesting that underneath that air of arrogance and confidence might be insecurity mm-hmm. and i say that because Several people have commented on it, actually. The first few quotes are from Bezo Hoffman, whom the Beatles met in 1962. He took some early photographs of them and became a regular photographer for them for several years. Bezo said, Paul was certainly the most unusual, underestimated Beatle. Each of the four of them had a certain creativity that differed from what the other three had. Paul's particular strength was that he was essentially a teacher. So in the Salowich book, um, we learn that Dezo invited the Beatles to go see a certain comic in Manchester. Um, Paul was the only one who wanted to go. And Mm -hmm. since Dezo was something of a big name at the time, he was able to get them backstage, which Paul was very impressed by. (laughs) (laughs) And Dezo said that... Paul typically turned the occasion to his advantage by picking the comic's brains as to how best to armor himself against the strains of stardom. Mm-hmm. As far, and then Salowich continues, as far as Dezo Hoffman could tell, these pressures, when they arrived, were far more intimidating for Paul McCartney than his public persona permitted him to show. A difficulty with which Paul always grappled Dezo detected, was a shyness that he had worked hard to eradicate, but that nevertheless rose almost irrepressibly. He pretended to be. It was all pretense. That's why he was able to give such fabulous interviews later, because he covered up his inadequacies the only way he could, by joking, by pretending to jump ahead of anybody who asked him a difficult or intimate question. He would give serious interviews when he was on his own, But when he was answering questions with the others, Paul was unable to really reveal himself at all. Though admittedly, they'd all be joking at such times anyway. Salowich compares this statement from Dezo to something similar said by Jack Sweeney, one of Paul's masters at the Institute. So Jack Sweeney is talking about there being a real kind of cozy family feeling at the Institute. Salowich writes, Jack Sweeney is sure such a feeling must have been important for Paul McCartney. And then he quotes Sweeney saying, because I think Paul was always insecure and there was this cozy family feeling about the school. Salovich continues, Jack Sweeney is not alone in noting the insecurity and sensitivity behind Paul McCartney's breezy facade. Alan Durbin saw it also 
and traces its first appearance to around the time of Mary McCartney's death. But perhaps it was also the sense of inadequacy he felt as a boy from a housing project in this academic environment. So about the last word anyone would usually apply to Paul is shy. But as we read earlier, he said that his dad, a salesman, turned him into a salesman as a child. <laughs> <laughs> and as someone who does want to be liked and definitely wants to get up and sing and play and who finds people interesting and is smart, observant, and a good mimic, it's unsurprising that he would become good at performing in that role. Even if in other ways he's awkward or atypical or bad at expressing himself or even shy sometimes and wants to hide in a cupboard. Insecurities and inadequacies also seem like somewhat surprising words, considering all we've been told about Paul's excessive confidence. So what do we make of these people who knew him saying that underneath he had a shyness? And an insecurity. I completely believe that's true. First of all, he has said as much over the years. I mean, he doesn't say it often, but he has said that a couple of times. Mm -hmm. Deep down, yeah, I'm insecure like everybody else. You know, it's funny. He's a little defensive about it. Yeah. Um. Well, it's a little bit like, well, of course I am. Why are you making me have to say it? Can't you just assume that I'm a human? Well, and it's something that he very much definitely does not like to talk about. Mm -hmm. That's the whole point. I mean, that's why he has the arrogant facade. Right. You know? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Similarly to how John Lennon had an aggressive, tough, you know, macho facade, but inside was a insecure, soft baby boy. Paul is the same. It's just that Paul's suit of armor looks very different from John's. Yes. A. But B, Paul didn't talk about it a million times. I mean, John right. Lennon gave you all the talking points. He did all the work for you. So he was pretty eloquent about what an insecure person he was on the inside. Mm -hmm. Paul didn't talk like that. No. And doesn't. No, uh, no. I think he thinks it's that's none of anyone's business. <laughs> sure. And so, you know, maybe that's, maybe the result of that is that he gets sold short. But thank God <laughs> there are some nosy podcasters who are doing all the work. <laughs> yeah. Now I feel guilty. No, he wants somebody to do the work. He doesn't want to do it. He wants yeah. other people to do it. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> I'm not going to talk about those things, but yeah. you're welcome to. But you're welcome to, yeah. Well, I, I hope so. If not, sorry, Paul. We'll leave you with this final observation from Mr. Jack Sweeney. Paul is a very complex person. People feel that it was John Lennon who was the complex Beatle. But in the first place, Paul had this extraordinary dualism 
At any given moment, he could be so easygoing and so casual, yet there was also this toughness. He would hold the class entranced. He was a born leader, so gregarious, so popular. But he could also be as sardonic as John Lennon. I remember this from when he was holding forth in class. He could deliver the sardonic, the devastating comment, even at that age. But because he's such a decent bloke, he wouldn't cultivate this. He wouldn't make a thing of it, as John Lennon would. Lennon loved hurting people and stirring them up. Paul could do all of that, too. Everything that John said, he could have said. But he didn't. And this idea that he was just nice, he was very complex. Yes, he could be so nice, but he was also the most astute of them all, the toughest and the shrewdest, right from the start. There is this absurd oversimplification that it was John, the creative, complicated bloke, and Paul, the easygoing extrovert. No such thing. Paul is both, and a clever man to be able to wear two hats. As you'll recall, I love you is not a thing that was said in Paul's house. As we know, because Paul has talked about it many times, saying I love you is something that was almost impossibly hard for Paul. Yes, yes, for decades. To anyone, to girlfriends, to friends, to his own wife, to his kids. Most of the times he's talked about it is in the context of not being able to say it to John Lennon. And it's now part of the story that he tells before he sings a song here today with an encouragement to everybody in the audience to tell the people that you love, that you love them, do it even though it's hard, just say it. Because Paul mostly talks about it in the context of John Lennon, I think people often interpret it as some sort of either toxic masculinity problem or a homophobia issue. But given what we know and that this is a problem that follows him from relationship to relationship, this is not a John Lennon specific problem for him. Right. This is an issue throughout his life, and it can be traced pretty easily back to the fact that this was not something he heard in his own home. That didn't mean that it wasn't there, or that he didn't feel it, or didn't know that mm -hmm. his parents loved him. I'm sure he did. I'm sure that he understood that through the other ways that they expressed that. Through their attention, their encouragement, their hard work. All of that. But it's still significant because Paul has told us that it's significant to him. When he gives that speech for here today, people hear it only as him saying this from the perspective of someone who didn't say it enough. Tell people you love them because you'll regret it if you don't. I speak from experience. But I have to wonder if he's also saying this from the perspective of someone who didn't hear it enough, either. Tell people you love them 
because they need to hear it. I speak from experience. I think it's really beautiful that even though Paul has always found it really difficult, or maybe even impossible, to say the words I love you, he nevertheless became the most successful writer of love songs the world has ever known. It is his greatest theme, a beautiful mystery that still fascinates and inspires him, and he's been unashamed of that from the very beginning. Maybe he couldn't speak the words, but he dedicated his life to singing them. There was a boy, a very strange enchanted boy. They say he wandered very far, very far over land and sea. A little shy and sad of eyes, but very wise was he. And then one day, a magic day, he passed my way. While we spoke of many things, fools and kings, this he said to me. The greatest thing you'll ever learn is just to love and be loved in return. to love and be loved in return. Thank you for listening to Unseen Paul. Join us next time for the conclusion of Fine Tuning.